Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Mountain Stories podcast. This summer and this fall, we've had the great honor to collaborate with Dr. Shomei Pu as part of her part of her research project, Mountains and Stories, Building Community Among Asian Refugees and Immigrants. Our goal here at the Institute for Mountain Research is to connect people to mountains and share the stories people have to share about them. And this project is uh, its really right in our wheelhouse and we're excited to share these stories with you. So my name is Brent Olson. I'm one of the directors along with Jeff Nichols. We're housed at Westminster College here in Salt Lake City, right in the heart of the Salt Lake Valley. And we've been sitting down over the last six months with people who live and work and play here in the valley, um, but who also have deep, deep ties to Asia and the Pacific Islands. I'm excited to welcome Emilio Manuela Kamu to the studio. Emilio serves as the current president of OCA Utah, the vice president of education and culture for OCA National founder and director of the Filipino-American National Historical Society, Utah, treasurer for MANA Academy, and director of the Filipino-American Association of Utah. I will now turn over to Emilio. Hi, my name is Emilio Manuel Camu. I am an, a Tagalog and Bicol non-Filipino immigrant from the Philippines. I uh, was born in Quezon City and moved to the United States in 2001. So I've been here for about 20 years. I grew up in Salt Lake Valley, attended its public schools, and also pursued my undergraduate and graduate degrees at the University of Utah. So I've been here for a good 20 years of my life. I think growing up in Salt Lake City definitely was challenging. Um, my, both of my parents were workers. They were laborers and uh, they, they found different jobs in different fields. Uh, my father usually worked in the restaurant industry and my mother worked, um, started out as a phlebotomist and is now a nurse. Um, but that journey kind of uh, I took with her because I feel like I was going through school when she was going through school as a high school student. Um, it was funny because when I graduated high school, she graduated with her iron from Salt Lake Community College. So I think growing up, we we knew where we were, the valley. We, we knew we were in the valley because we're also kind of valley people. Um, Tagalog and Bicolnon uh, are ethnic groups in the Philippines, and they're they're known as kind of like the lower valley or the valley people there too. But we are always aware of the mountains that surrounded us when we were growing up. Uh, I think for my family, we try to be connected to nature. Unfortunately, growing up, they were we were all busy um, with both my parents working full time. Sometimes. Uh, you know, more than overtime um, to help provide for myself and my two brothers at the time and now three. But I think ever since that, ever since I uh, started undergraduate studies at the University of Utah, we, well, I, <laughs> along with my friends, started getting more and more introduced to the outdoors. And I, I really appreciate it because I think uh, ever since it was always so far away. And I think what happened then was I was introduced more and more to it. We started out with the view or the Ensign Peak. And from there, we started to go on all these different hikes. And ever since I'm like, okay, I understand now uh, the the beauty that there is that lies in our nature here. I think for before, it, it seemed so far away. Uh, and it just took a little introduction with the people who were already connected to it. Because growing up, our relationship as a family to the mountains was always kind of um, historic for uh, I'm not sure if you know of like the history of the Philippines of like colonization and all of that. 2021 marks 500 years of the first contact of um, of Spain to to the Philippines with Magellan and uh, Lapu Lapu and and all of that in 1521. And I think over the course of colonization, American imperialism, our our immediate histories um, and past generations have always been too familiar with war and and. Like and trauma, <laughs> uh, and so growing up, my grandparents, especially my maternal grandparents, um, and my mom would emphasize, uh, you know, what happened during World War II, and that's kind of where my relationship and uh, introduction to the mountains was start uh, got started, um, because they would tell us, you know, oh, my uh, maternal grandparents had to hide in the mountains. the The mountains were a place of refuge, uh, for them. Uh, you know, they would use the the mud or the dirt and mix it with the rivers that were there. Um, cover their faces um, to make sure that the the Japanese soldiers at the time did not, you know, find any of them too fair 
you know, otherwise that, that would have uh, deadly consequences. And so it, it was always a place of refuge. And I think now it was like, okay, other than a place of refuge from trauma, from war, over the past, I think, 10 years or 11 years being involved in Utah's Asian Pacific Islander communities, I was able to develop through the community a better relationship with the mountains as like as a place of, I don't know, as a, as a place of appreciation and as a place to ground myself. Because I think over that time, especially over, and not, it's, it's not necessarily related to undergraduate and academic studies, but growing as a person, <laughs> as an adult, uh, I started seeking more and more opportunities and stories for myself to see where I came from. And I, I knew I was Filipino. I knew it was Tagalog. I, I started growing my understanding of our roots in Bicolnon because they're two different uh, places in, in the Philippines. So they're, they're both located on the island of Luzon or Lusung. However, the Tagalog people originated or are, are based in the southwest most part of that island, uh, whereas the Bicol Nun people are in the Bicol region or Ibalnong, which was what it was known as before uh, the Spanish came, in the southeast corner of that. And it's it's pretty far apart. <laughs> so it's two completely different cultures, two different languages, each with their own dialects, depending on the region. And I think, you know, I... I that's when I started growing in more and more uh, of an understanding. And that's when I started looking at our creation stories, our, our legends. I wouldn't say myths because I, I do believe somewhat that, you know, that they are real and they help explain our people's relationship with, with nature. And so as a settler here, as a person who migrated here with my parents um, and has been staying here for 20 years, even though it kind of feels like home and this is where I grew up, you know, I still try to further understand, like, what are my relationships to the mountains here? And what is my relationship to the mountains where I was born? <laughs> was Utah the first place that uh, your family immigrated to? Or? Actually, no. Um, when we first came here, uh, we went to New Jersey. And it was for an aunt's wedding. And actually, we didn't, I didn't know because I was eight years old at that time that we were moving to stay here. I thought we were just coming to the U.S. to visit for my aunt's wedding. And then after that, we kind of stayed. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what about all my friends? <laughs> and after, I think, six months of living in uh, Somerset, New Jersey, then that's when we moved to uh, Salt Lake City because my paternal grandparents were here. They actually migrated to the U.S. first. Uh, and they were able to, I think, come here around 1996 uh, and, and because of their connections and my, grand, my paternal grandmother's friends and elementary school friends that somehow found her and told her there were job opportunities here so we my dad first followed them and then we ended up following him i think around the time when salt lake city hosted the olympics that's when i that's when that's my memory of uh and my understanding of coming to salt lake like, oh there you're going where the olympics are at right now okay cool <laughs> So for myself and my understanding of our people, so Tagalog historically have had a different relationship because, you know, we say in the valleys, the rivers, Tagalog itself is a contraction of Tagailog, and that means people from the river. We also know that in the mountains, in the Philippines, in, in the island of Luzon, the mountains have a whole different climate, and it's a lot colder uh, than the valley, and there are ethnic groups that are considered, you know, mountain people. So... Myself being Tagalog and Bicolnon, uh, but the mountain people in the islands of Luzon are the collectively known as the Igorot. Maybe it's also like a pejorative term. Some folks have argued, some folks have um, kind of reclaimed it. But the ethnic groups that are associated with it are the Ifugao, the Benguet, the Bontok, the Kalinga, and, and those people that live up there with their own creation stories and, and what their origins are. Because that push, that understanding kind of helped push me uh, to see what our origin stories are, right? In terms of talking about indigeneity and land, I think I, I read somewhere that, you know, indigenous peoples are the ones with stories that they came from that earth. And I think the more and more I looked, there's a lot of different ones. So I, that's why I brought, you know, these books with me today, because this is the ancient beliefs and customs of the Tagalogs. Some stories say that we actually migrated way, 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 way long ago. <laughs> Um, but others say that we were born from that earth. And so I think it's now on us to kind of re-examine that and, and try to understand. But I know for the for my understanding of the Igorot people uh, 
and the different ethnic groups that comprise that, they originate from the mountains. They're born from the mountains. And I think how that informs my understanding is that, okay, we are definitely two different people and different ethnic groups with our own languages and cultures and, and, and ways of spirituality. And that helps me understand that, you know, Filipino itself, when we talk about Filipino, when we talk about a Filipino language, it is kind of mostly based on um, Tagalogs and, and Valley people, which is why, you know, there has been a historic division or divide um, between the mountain people and the Valley people, because the Valley people is the ones whose voices are heard. They're the ones who are heard in government. They take up government spaces and historically, you know, mountain people have not been able to be part of that. Now there's a little bit more, but in terms of representation, who gets to make uh, policy changes, who has a say, it is still definitely Valley people. So for me, I see my relationship with the environment, with my people and the people of the mountain, even though we're all called Filipino as a national identifying grouper, it is definitely a different experience. And for me, it informs my obligation and responsibility to you know, raise that history and raise that awareness about what our history and our power um, dynamics are for ourselves, our environment, and the mountain people and their environment, and how we all have to, you know, be in a much better ecosystem than what currently exists. Yeah. Um, while I was listening to what you were saying, I was thinking about. Uh, you know, it's sort of like a multiple identities, simultaneous multiple identities we live with, right? Uh, uh, for you and for me too, uh, we are like this broad pan-Asian identity in the U.S. We're recognized as Asians, uh, but our ethnicity is not necessarily recognized. Um, and at the meantime, we live and work and play uh, in places uh, um, older immigrants, uh, older generations of immigrants from Europe uh, also work, play, and live. My question is, how do you, how do you navigate all these multiple identities and the realities right. in your so think, everyday well, life? For me, so I'm Tagalog, I'm Bicol non, Filipino, immigrant, so think, 1.5 gen. Well, for me, so I'm Tagalog. Tagalog speaker, queer, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Salt, Salt Lake City resident, I guess. I don't know. Um, I think with all of that, I think what helps me navigate is knowing where my roots are. So I, for me, even though I've lived here, I know I'm rooted in my culture, in my language, in our spiritual beliefs. And even though I have a very, even though I've been told I have a very American way of uh, thinking and, and, and constructing things, I think... Uh, what I look through in terms of navigating, right, being in predominantly white spaces, being in a place like Utah where uh, I'm of a minority religion, of a minority ethnicity, and all the other identities that I hold, I think how I navigate it is continuing to see where I come from in my communities. So I think understanding for myself that I'm part of a bigger collective group, I think is great. And I think because of my experience, I've also been able to build on my own individual identity. And that strengthens me to to navigate these spaces. I know for others, you know, it I don't know. Like what I said earlier, it's uh I it's I don't wanna make my whole living in the way of life that I have as a reaction to outside force, as a reaction to you know, uh, yeah, to, as a reaction to outside forces and, and how other people live things. And I think because of the systems and the network I've built and that I was born into, because of my familial and my cultural wealth and knowledge, I'm able to do this. Uh, I think, you know, even though I've moved so far away from where I was born, I think I still carry the the wisdom and the the skills that my ancestors have left for me and it shows up in different ways that I find myself so surprised uh, that you know different times I notice it other times I don't and one of the examples is uh, my mom and her relationship with plants and because my my maternal grandfather has a green thumb he grow he grew everything in their backyard uh, 
cashew tree cashew fruit trees and um like bilimbi or um kamyas trees and so many so many things um and just recently I noticed whenever my mom, she has succulents. <laughs> some, some of them have died, but you know, she hasn't, we, we're all in my family, my immediate family, not known to be the best caretakers of plants, succulents, uh, veggie plants or otherwise. Um, whenever she would point at plants or other like living things, she wouldn't use her finger. She would either use her mouth, like what Filipinos are known to do. You point with your mouth or she'd point with her knuckles um, because it's, it's not I think it's it is because it's rude, but also because I don't know, I think there's some energy or power or whatever. If it's a direct point, you kind of kill the plant. <laughs> and I think I saw that and I mean I didn't talk to her about it, but I just asked her, so why do that? Because all she said because it's rude if you point directly with your finger. That's why, you know, we use our mouth or other other um limbs. But um I got thinking, I'm like, huh, is this one of those traits that has survived uh, hundreds of years or millennia of of trauma and colonization, and this is one way that's kind of lived through and and how I see it. Um, so I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I don't know if I have the answer, but I'm like, okay, I'll I'll live through it and see. And if if it's too serious, okay, great. I'm glad I picked up on that one small trait. And so I I know there have been others in the past, but that's the one that came into mind particularly. Um, so there's little tidbits like that. I think that helped me understand who I am in relationship to the world, but how I can help carry myself and the people around me um, to navigate this space, <laughs> Salt Lake City, Utah, <laughs> um, into making sure, again, you know, it's not a reaction to where I live, but it is a, it is a constant reflection and uh, yeah, it's a, a way of, a way of living. Whenever people ask me if I go skiing or snowboarding or up in the mountains, I go, no, I just go hiking because I'm a, I'm an island boy. <laughs> like I was born on the island, even though I didn't grow up there. So I think I'm more into like surfing, even though I haven't tried it. <laughs> but I think now, you know, I over time I, I did develop more interest in trying to find out uh, and 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 experiencing that. So it's been definitely more into hiking, kind of uh, walking through nature and and whatever else uh, the mountains offer. We go around to, I think Bells Canyon was actually my first hike. <laughs> and what an introduction, because it took us eight hours <laughs> with, with our friends. And I think what happened was it, our, our relationship was so strong with my friend group that I had met through the University of Utah. Uh, and it was mostly with other Asian Americans. Um, they're either first gen or also descendants of uh, of refugees and immigrants and I think it was really interesting because we were able to all bond through what was called the Asian American Student Association and the Pacific Islander Student Association which I was heavily involved in and from there the mountains became a place for us to bond aside from food aside from campus I think for us being able to create those relationships and to um, kind of engage each other in that way I think was really integral for our relationship because these are people I still hike with today we can't hike as <laughs> we, can, we don't hike as much uh, right now, but I think um, given time and given space, I think we would uh, take it on. I think the second hike actually was at Donut Falls, and it, we were told it would be easy after the first hike. They told us, "Okay, Bell's Canyon is too rough, uh, too hard. Uh, let's introduce you to an easier hike, Donut Falls." But none none of us had ever been there, and it was a group of twenty, and <laughs> we were all scaling the sides of the mountain. We were all trying to find where it was and it wasn't until uh, other strangers kind of helped direct us like hey are y'all good up there because they saw us kind of climbing different spots and we're like well we're just trying to look at the falls and they were kind enough to just show us the way and like hey uh they pointed us into a direction we're like oh is that it we did not know and so we just followed people and and were able to find the right place but I think that was one of the most interesting parts of of going up and from then on it was just hike hike after hike after hike that we try to explore different places like Lake Blanche and Lake Mary uh, and, and so many other ones that we still try to go back to this day because we're just trying to um, continue that relationship and, and um, making sure that we're t taking in the the richness of the nature that uh, surrounds us, particularly uh, because as a student organization at, at that time and as now as like community members, 
we realize the importance of you know Asians and Pacific Islanders and our relationship to nature. Yeah. So for myself and my friends, it kind of opened the doors as well to build on solidarity with Indigenous peoples and First Nations because I think we were going on these hikes and trying to determine what our relationship with the land was. And I think being part of the the student organizations that we were part of, there was another sibling organization called the Intertribal Student Association. And from there, that's when we really grew our understanding of like, okay, we're settlers on this land. We're not indigenous to this land. And further examining what our relationship was because, you know, as as students, we, we want to support each other, particularly as students of color, as first-gen students, as immigrant and refugee students. We're trying to understand the different ways in which we are all affected by, you know, different uh, different forces, different systems of oppression. And that's when we finally, I think, finally understood and came to a commitment to uh, making sure that, you know, when we are going on these hikes, when we're understanding nature, that we're respecting the, not just the environment, but also understanding that the original people and the original caretakers of the land do still exist. They're not figures of legend or, or folklore, that they do still exist and that, you know, that they still come from here. Versus other people who have, you know, even though it's been maybe hundreds of years, a couple hundred years that people have settled here, that it's still, it's not ours. That pushed us into, for like committing for, for life to making sure that we're active in taking care of the environment and, and, and like sustainability, but also in the political side uh, that we're understanding what, what these mean. Um, you mentioned uh, you wanted to Lake Blanche. It's one of my favorite hiking places too. I went to uh, up there. Oh, uh, how many times? I don't even remember. <laughs> so I took a trip to Lake Blanche several times a year. Uh, I have lived here for about uh, five years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every time um, I went on that trail, I and my partner... Um, was the only Asian we saw, mm. right? <laughs> I came right. up there. Um, so was that also the case when you and the group went up there? And yes. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, you have lived here for 20 years. Yeah. What are your observations of Asians, uh, you know, enjoying the outdoors? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the barriers uh, for Asians uh, participating in outdoor activities. Mm-hmm. Could, you, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So I'll talk first about experience and then I'll talk about barriers. In terms of my experience, I definitely very had uh, I had a very similar experience in terms of when we would hike. That's why we would go in large groups. <laughs> and if we were in large groups, then we have like smaller groups that we would split off because there would be fast people <laughs> and there would be slow people. And I would stay in the back because I was one of the slow people. You know, whenever we would pass people by... It, it was kind of awkward because, you know, these are people that had hiking gear and whatever. And here we are in our different little club shirts, our university shirts and mismatching. Some people didn't bring water <laughs> because we were all for most of us. It was our first experience or some of our first experiences um, going into uh, nature and into the mountain. And I think for us, we were definitely hyper aware, particularly now, especially during the pandemic. I would go on hikes with my aunt or my cousins or my friends and we would be the only ones in masks. <laughs> and we knew we were we were hyper aware of how that made us look. Like okay, do we put a mask on and increase the bullseye target on us or do we take them off and be at risk for contracting covid? But for us, you know, for us it's always our own personal safety and thankfully we all are confident and we are all, I don't know, well-connected enough that we feel strongly about uh, doing what we want for, for ourselves and not in fear of others. So we, we would continue to have these masks on. And I know, I know and I have felt the looks on us whenever we go up because even though I'm Filipino, right, like there, people are going after anyone who looks East Asian. And growing up in Utah, my experience has it's always kind of been a subtle niceness, subtle it's it's subtle. The 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 racism here and the oppression is very subtle because they won't say it up to your face, but you feel it. The energy. Um, my friends always joke whenever they visit because now we're all alumni uh, of the of the university, but we have our own reunions um, with our Asian and Pacific Islander and Latino groups, 
whenever they come back, they're like, ooh, I just, we landed. And as soon as the plane of the door opened, we felt the 10 pounds of, <laughs> of, of that hair. But I think despite that, and, and, and I think aside from it, from us, what we want to do is not always live in reaction to the oppression here and, and not live in reaction to, you know, here. I think for us, you know, with the understanding that we're settlers and we're not the indigenous peoples, I think on top of the understanding for us, we have as much belonging here and as much say um, than other folks who are also settlers. So I think we, we come into that mindset and I think that's why we go in groups together to for, for safety, but also for enjoyment. And in terms of barriers, I think for me, whenever I go up and experience nature and environment, I, I'm always amazed because we went to Strawberry Lake and it's surrounded by, you know, mountains. And uh, it's very known for Southeast Asians, for Vietnamese, Cambodians, Laotians, for crawfish. <laughs> and and I, I love it because, you know, my friends experience this with their families. But being Filipino, for us, we we are not necessarily like crawfish isn't a huge staple in our diet, but I think from them, from my Vietnamese and Laotian Cambodian friends and their families, I was able to experience that. And, and I was always uh, intrigued and, and overjoyed because here I was seeing aunties and uncles, my friends' parents or their, their aunts and uncles enjoying nature for their own. And whenever they take, they only take what they need. For themselves or if they're taking more then it's always as a redistribution they're like okay we we have too much for one family we are definitely going to wash this cook it and then split it up and, and share with other folks so that's something that I, I think i i had intrinsically in terms of sharing but to see it in that way um to see that relationship with nature like, okay take what you need and if not then you have to share this as part of our respect right you, you don't take too much otherwise then it, the resources are going to de get depleted for the next uh, people there and i think um that's been cool to to witness other barriers though i think definitely is that understanding for for people who are new here i know they have great relationships with with the environment and nature at their home countries or wherever they're from but here they might not necessarily understand what the resources are what's available until they hear it by word of mouth I call, I call it the anti-uncle like gossip chain because <laughs> it's faster than text. It's faster than internet. And and unless they have that connection in the community, for which many people do, uh, luckily, then then that's when they find out all of these different resources and, and spots for fish or for trout or for crawfish and, and, and these things. So I, I find it really exciting. But I, I find it funny that it always comes from our people and not necessarily from outside resources. And when, when people are coming, you know, they're so focused on like, okay, they need clothes, they need canned food, they need all of this. But I think our people here have been creative enough. And I think that it's been great that it's come from us, but I do definitely uh, would like to see more support financially and, and uh, structurally from, from our uh, local governments. Because I think it's great that, you know, people are sharing resources and, and all of that to each other because it shows the the strength. For example, uh, many of the Smiths or Walmarts that offer fresh produce are on the east side, but what's on the west side that uh, offers produce? Asian stores, Pacific <laughs> Islanders, Latino stores. And so, you know, I think our people have always been able to 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 overcome it, but I think, you know, there's, there's so much you should only have to overcome that you should be able to enjoy. Um, and I think for these, uh, for people who have been able to share those, uh, those resources to nature, I think it's been great, but I think, you know, there definitely could be more of us out there licensing. I mean, I know it's like law, but when it's not offered in different languages, like for fishing, for, for boating, for whatever, camping, it, it is definitely a barrier for, for our people to enjoy it. Yes, uh, your community uh, also very big on like uh, your commitment uh, to your family and to your like community. Like in Chinese culture, uh, we're expected to um, be very uh, loyal mm -hmm. um, to your family, right? Uh, is that true in your community as well? Uh, is your claiming of your own individuality 
and uh, like a cultural expectations. Is there any clash? Does that create oh. any tension between you, the younger generation, mm-hmm. um, and uh, your parents' generation? Yeah. Well, I think for me, it's like a, a combination of three different generations because I, I want to include my paternal and maternal grandparents in it. Because I think for me, you know, the, I think I see a clash with my friends and uh, them being in, more individualist and growing up here versus their parents being more collectivist and growing up there and that, you know, filial piety and loyalty that you have to have. I think for me, it's it's a little different. Uh, my, I think my parents were the ones that noticed that sort of, uh, and and felt that sort of clash between you know loyalty and and pursuing individual uh, growth versus kind of a collectivist nature because I I would say we we still have a strong uh, similar to to Chinese culture I think Filipino particularly Tagalog and Bicolano culture is it is very strongly connected to family but I think what my parents saw was that other people abused it that it became toxic you know I, one of the practices that our family still uh, observes is you know, if if it's your first job, if it's your first paycheck, either you give the full paycheck to your parents or you treat them out for, you know, the whole family out for dinner. So I think that's something that we observe. But I know my parents were the ones that say, to, the, were the first to say to us, uh, myself and my other siblings, is that if you don't have money, we're not going to take it from you. If you don't, then, you know, whatever is reasonable, whatever is practical, if we can observe this tradition another time. Um, but they were the ones that are pointed that out because what I see in other families is, that, yeah, that the the kids not just give their first paycheck, but you know, are they are um, obligated uh, to to give more than they can? And I, I've definitely seen that clash in other folks. I think for my family, I I didn't see it and I didn't experience it because I think my parents were the one to see it and maybe experience it. But I know their the relationship with their parents have, you know, they they've been good. But I think they see it in in other Filipino um, families, and so they were the ones to to, to stop that. Uh, those practices and stop the abuse of uh, in the name of tradition kind of practices for us and so I think for me yeah uh, in terms of our my pursuit of individualism slash collectivism whatever that balance looks like it has been informed by their blessing to allow us to do that because they always say you know we we move to America not to I mean as with other <laughs> people we move to america for opportunities but for myself i don't see them as a as a hindrance i think for them they're just trying to understand what the different steps are that i'm taking because at first i wanted to be a neurosurgeon in high school and then i switched to communication <laughs> and they're like what is this and it wasn't necessarily like uh because i was the one that was determining my own path and they supported it for the longest time but they're like what is this switch from medicine to communication and you know uh, uh social sciences and i couldn't explain it at that time and i thought you know like what other agents especially go through is that if you're not in medicine, then you're kind of, you know, what other people think is worthless. But it wasn't that for me. It was more of a, okay, <laughs> you have to create a plan. Uh, and, and it was for them trying to understand what that path looked like if it was more of a non-traditional route and a lesser known route for them. And so I didn't realize it for a few years, but after a while, like, oh, okay, I, I get where that relationship and that reaction was coming from is because they just weren't used to it. They just didn't know. I guess for 10 years, I did say doctor, doctor, surgeon. <laughs> and all of a sudden, social science, community, and education. I think that's when I noticed, okay, my parents are different than other folks, than than perhaps my my friend's parents because of that relationship. So it hasn't been too much of a clash. I think it's more trying to share it with them. Uh, it, and, and to give some backstory, my, my dad, he grew up in... It started out on the Philippines, then Trinidad and Tobago, then Guyana in South America. Then he went to high school in South Africa before uh, pursuing college back in the Philippines. My mom, um, she was what, number four? One, two, three. She's number four of six children. And I think she was always different from her siblings because she is the one also pursuing different things they were all they all went into the medical field and my mom wasn't at first now she's a nurse uh i think she always saw things differently um especially um in, in different things she, t- she always tells me you're not obligated to do these things for family you're not you don't have to give more than um you want or than you need or is is more than needed of you so i i noticed that now and 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 more recently so yeah i haven't face as much of it because i don't know if it's familiar too with other folks but like land (laughs) 
land disputes and ownership and and passing it down, particularly ancestral land. And um, my parents never introduced us to that until I started asking about it because I was curious because my friends would be like, oh my gosh, my parents are fighting again with their siblings over who's taking the land and who's taking care of it and whose name is on the on the um, title. And I'm like, I did not experience the fights. When I asked, that's when my mom and, and my dad would bring me in, but it wasn't to show me like what the negatives were. It was more so that I understood what was happening because I was just curious. But yeah. My my mom uses the same way, mm-hmm. like uh, in the village where I was born and grew up, uh, girls are not supposed to, to go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom wanted to go to school badly, uh, but because uh, she was the second daughter in the family, she didn't get the chance to um, go to high school. So um, she kind of placed uh, all her hope on me. So that's why I'm here today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah it's, um, she is different uh, from other people. Like your mother doesn't think the same way. Uh, although, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. We didn't get the chance to talk about your work. Uh, I know that you you have yeah you have uh, uh, taken up um, so many leadership uh, positions uh, and uh, working for uh, diversity, including and equity for Asian communities, plural, not a singular. So could you share with us a little bit about your work? And, um, their aspirations mm-hmm. are there shared aspirations in the Asian communities that you work with? Yeah, I think so, and that's why I liked to take on these different roles. Sometimes I was like, oh my gosh, why did I add this on? But it all relates, I think, um, in terms of what um, my vision is and what I hope is a collective vision for our communities is that. We thrive here, you know. We're not just getting resources for our communities to survive and barely pass by. I I would like to see, and I think other people would like to see, a place where it is truly a multicultural, like, pluralistic kind of place here where we're, we can depend on each other, but we can also depend on outside. And people can, you know, if, if they like, they can uh, be part of the community if they want to be. But if they don't, then they're free to do so as well without judgment. And I think why I'm so involved is because of the mentorship I received and because of the relationships and, and that was that were built over time in terms of what I saw my responsibility is and my obligation is. I think that's what I often ask myself. I'm not super religious, but I am spiritual. Uh, my my dad would always ask me over the years, especially when I started to go to college, you know, what is the meaning of life? And he and I would always forget what the answer was. But he had one. He's like, well, there's an answer. I'm like, there is? He's like, yes, there's an answer. And for him, you know, being super Catholic um, and my mom being super Catholic and for myself, you know, cult- culturally Catholic, um, he would always say, yeah, the answer is to get into heaven. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, cool. Um, but both my parents were, you know, super involved. I think my grand, my paternal and maternal grandparents were super involved in community work. So I think that's where I got it from. But I think my parents both experienced kind of the downsides of being um, too involved in the community so that people expect your time and, your obli- and, are, and you feel obligated to do things. Or uh, again, the anti-uncle gossip chain uh, and, and what that could mean or destroy for families. And so for them, they opted out of it. But for myself, I decided to, you know, be part of it. And over the years, my dad kept asking me the same question. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and I never remembered the answer that he wanted. But I told him, uh, I think it was just recently, because it finally made sense to me. I'm like, wow, why do I want to be involved? Why do I want to keep giving up my time and volunteering and doing all these different things, even though it, I'm not getting paid? And for me, I, when he asked me recently, I told him, okay, well, uh, you know, it's to it's to gain kingdom into heaven, but also what better way to gain king, uh, entry into the kingdom than uh, walking in Jesus' footsteps of serving the people who are most in need. And it was like, ah! <laughs> and so I'm like, ah, okay, cool. I have a good answer. Um, but aside from that, it's not, I don't think it's like, you know, it's not necessarily a self, because it seems a little self-serving, um, 
for me that is like I'm only doing good so I can get good after life. I think for me it's a little different than that, but I think it helped um him understand like why I was doing the things and you know it is related, but I think for me too it's just like I I've had so much opportunity. I've been blessed with so much opportunity. I've seen the struggle and the sacrifice my parents and my grandparents and extended family have gone through to get us to where we are today. And so I know other people would be like peeved if their parents always push them for masters or for PhD. I think for mine, I'm a little like it's a it's now humorous because I'm like, okay, yeah, I know, I you know, I will, and and just being able to answer that way versus you know, I think other people see it as an expectation that they are expected to fulfill or they, that they can't fulfill. For me, it's like okay, I understand because it's an opportunity that they've sacrificed for. It's not necessarily for myself, but for our you know our, our entire clan. Uh, and and I think from that understanding what that what their sacrifice and their uh what they gave up for for me to be able to have this set of opportunities yeah, i definitely don't want to waste it and i think i see that with other folks and you know i think the workload gets easier uh or the yeah it gets easier when there's more of you together and so i know i can't move by myself i, I know i can't do things by myself especially when we're trying to create collective change so I know I, I need to work with other people and I love working with other people. That's why I, I love all the different organizations I'm part of because it is relationship building. No one's getting paid to do it. And it's all through volunteer. But I think that's the best relationship is when you have the shared commitment to the betterment of our communities and, and, and seeing what that looks like. And I know I can't do everything and I can't change everything. But that's why for myself, I found a very comfortable niche where uh, I know what I need to do to move our communities forward. Um, with the understanding that it's not just my ideas, it's been the ideas of people before me who've created space for me to be able to be here. I think for me, the connection is because I know who I am. You know, it, it, it's I'm an individual, but I, I came from somewhere. And I think there always has to be a relationship between myself and where I came from and, and where I currently am. So I can't, build community here without understanding what's going on back home. And I think for myself, it's always that I will always consider the Philippines home because that's where I was born in the, uh, in, in the island of Luzon. And I think it, it requires our understanding, particularly because of the contentious relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines in the past, the past hundred years and between the Philippines and Spain in the past 500 years. And so I think it requires an examination of that. And I th for myself, it's important to keep connected with both because of the ongoing effects that uh, colonization and imperialism has had on our people and it continues to have. And that's why, you know, I, I think it would be unforgivable for me to like try to create change here because ultimately if we're trying to create collective change here, it has to be connected to where we all come from and, and examining that through the point of, you know, uh, of, of critiquing and understanding, you know, our histories and, and how we're intertwined. I didn't just happen to migrate to the U.S. I, I migrated here because of the different policies that, uh, that were created by governments and by people in power who have no personal relationship to me, but who continue to exploit the, the lands that I was on and forced our people to find opportunities in different places. And that's why and where my understanding of diaspora came from and of migration and immigration and, and why there are so many people here. And you see, like, oh, the U.S. is so diverse. But then you examine the relationship of the U.S. government to the governments of other nations and to the lands and resources of other nations. You're like, ah, that's why. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you examine different uh, ethnic people's histories. Chinese American, Laotian American, and you'll find very similar um, histories. And so that for myself, that's why I have to be rooted in the Philippines and here. Even though here I'm not just rooted in the Filipino community, it's the Asian Pacific Islander. Because of that shared history and, and experiences uh, with different systems. <laughs> Uh, and one of the stories I'd like to share, I'm going to pull out my phone because it's something that uh, came up with the Mauna Kea movement of Hawaii um, with the 30 millimeter telescope that they were trying to build on Mauna Kea, um, which is according to Hawaiian tradition and Hawaiian 
uh, oral history is the origin of the Hawaiian people. That mountain itself is their mother of some, you know, of of, of some source, and it's their part of their creation story. So it got me thinking and looking into what, where I come from, and what our relationships were to the mountains. And so for the Bicol non people, and uh, what is known as the Bicol region today, uh, Mount Mayon or Daragang Mayon is a mountain slash volcano in the Bicol region of the Philippines, and people live you know, in that area, a lot of the different peoples in that area have high respect and high um, obligations to, to to that mountain, to that volcano. And you'll see, if you look up pictures of it, you'll see the, the people still live in the valley, even though it's known to erupt. It erupted last year, <laughs> 2020, but you still see people living there. No construction at all. No no uh, desecration of, of the land uh, around surrounding the base of the mountain. And I think that was important for me to, okay, no, we do have a relationship and the and the responsibility to to our mountains for my own ethnic groups. And seeing that, I, I tried to look into the different origin stories and and all of that. And 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 it turns out, right, that Daragang Mayon is is a character in our legends. Uh, she was the daughter of one of the deity gods in in Bicol Nun legend. And that mountain is representative of where. Uh, where she, where her resting place was, and let me find the story <laughs> real quick. So there are many stories about Bulod Magayon, pro- popularly known as the Sacred Mount Mayon in Kabikolan or the Bicol region. The Mountain of Fire is home to Gugurang, the chief god of the indigenous Ibalnong, the ancestors of what is now known as the Bicol Non Bicolano or Bicol people. It's home to the Sacred Fire, the Abo or Apoy of Ibalon. Think of Mount Mayon. Mount Arayat for the Kapampangans, Mount Iraya for the Ivatans, the Mount Kanlaon for the Hiligaynon in Subuanon, and Mount Apo of the Bagobo, among others. So they're all part of our heritage and our homes and sites to much of our legacy. Uh, when Kabikolam was still known as Ibalnong, there lived Datu Makuso Govrawis, who had an only daughter, Daragang Magayon. Her beauty reached the eyes and ears of gods and mortals outside of Ibalnong. Yet no man could captivate Magayon's heart, including the handsome Datu Pagtuga of Iraga. This did not stop Pagtuga from showering Datu Makusog with gifts of gold, pearls, and wild trophies from his hunt. It was not until Panganoron or Ulap, the son of Datu Karilaya of the Tagalog of the South, came to Rawis to see the beautiful maiden. One rainy night, Magayon went to the, view, to the Yawa River and was almost swept away by a current when Panganoron came to her aid. After courting her, Panganoron declared his intentions to marry Magayon by thrusting his spears at the stairs of Datu Makusog's house, who offered no objections. The wedding would be in a month because Panganoron would have to go back to his home and prepare his provisions. When news came to Iraga, Pagtuga was furious. He kidnapped Datu Makusog and threatened to kill him unless Magayon agreed to marry him. Ulap heard of the news and rushed back in time to stop the wedding between Magayon and Pagtuga. Before Magayon and Ulap could embrace, Linog, one of Pagtuga's henchmen, hurled a spear to Panganoron's back, instantly killing him. Datu Makusog dug the grave where Magayon and Panganoron would lay. Their grave rose higher each day after the burial. Sometimes Pagtuga and Linog agitate the grave to get back his dowry buried with Magayon, causing the eruption. On certain days, the elders you can the elders say you can still see Panganoron kissing Magayon when the clouds surround the peak of the volcano. Um, but I think for us, it, it's not just a story. I think my understanding of of legends—that's why I don't call them myths and or folklores—is. Um, our legends and our creation stories uh, is influenced a lot by the Hawaiian people uh, because of the way that I learned his name. Is, he's, he's, he was one of the organizers, Lanakila, Lanakila Mangawil, and he is one of the Kanaka OEV that helped explain this relationship. He came here to Salt Lake and uh, to explain what was going on at Mauna Kea, and he explained it as, you know, that these Hawaiian stories are not just, uh, they're not myth. They're not just like a story or lessons for, for kids. But it, it, it's something that we should examine as, as adults because it helps explain the science and the relationship between the different um, environments that make an ecosystem. So between the, the Mount Mayon volcano and, and the valley and what its relationship are is with the other volcanoes and the mountains in the area. Because for us, it does represent all different gods and goddesses. Um, but it's not kind of like in the Western understanding of gods and goddesses. It's it's a... It's understanding the relationship between nature. I think you know the English definitely limits the understanding of it, but um, 
these are stories for me that I've had to seek out because over time, over colonization and imperialism, it it hasn't been passed down uh, orally anymore. And so I'm glad that these books exist for that purpose. Thanks, Emilio, for sharing his stories, and thank you for tuning in. Our next guest will be Jake、uh, Fitzsimalu. He is the leader and organizer of Yonghing Lion Dance Club, which is Utah's oldest Chinese lion dance performing group. Again on Saturday, June twenty-six,、uh, we will hold a community building cultural event in Fitz Park, South Salt Lake.、Uh, we will bring the group of storytellers together with the broader community.、Uh, we will enjoy a lion dance blessing ceremony, conversations, and Asian food. You can RSVP for the event through the following link. Where the social media of OCA Utah, where the social media of Promise South Salt Lake. Thanks to the Whiting Foundation Public Engagement Programs for supporting the project with a seed grant. And I want to give one last thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. Hope you can find some time to get out in the mountains and and meet some people while you're out there and build some community. We want to thank Jomei Pu for inviting us to collaborate on this project, for Westminster College for housing us, and to Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for our theme music. As Naomi used to say all the time, they are awesome, and you should check them out. Thanks a lot. <laughs>